How about if I just start at the beginning? <laughs> you could you could be honest. Because <laughs> you know what? They have the sweat equity that went into that memory that they're making with their friends and family. And that's what's important with us, and that's what the I Am Real World's about. Well, that's a great question. You know, one of the best things about a spring food plot is you get a second chance if it fails. Chasing Giants with Don Higgins. Brought to you by buyafarm.com, your source for farm, recreational properties, rural homes, and more. By tapping into Don's years of experience, dedication, and commitment, Chasing Giants focuses on the techniques, strategies, and dedication needed to harvest one of God's most amazing creations, world-class whitetails. Now, here is Don and co-host Terry Peer. Well, welcome everybody. Episode 21 of Chasing Giants with Don Higgins brought to you by BuyFarm.com. I'm Terry Peer and Don Higgins. How's it going, Don? Good. How are you, Terry? Great. It's uh, May 17th. We're in who knows how many weeks of this disaster of the coronavirus, and I'm about sick of it. And But I want to tell you, my, uh, my preparation for hunting season has never been better, and my farms never look better. Yeah, if you're sick of the corona deal you'd be glad you don't live in illinois where we got a dictator for a governor or a wannabe dictator but uh we're not going to go down that path we'll talk about deer hunting and i'm with you i'm uh i'm more ready than i've ever been you know i i've mentioned before that i had a list uh basically a two-year plan of things i wanted to do to my property uh to make it twice as good as it as it has been and uh i not only finished this year's list uh, i'm well in the next year's list um done some of the projects that i thought i wouldn't get to this spring and they're already completed and, you know i can't wait to see what this property is in two or three years down the road because uh i think i've done some things that are going to make a huge difference yeah it's fantastic we've we, if you uh follow uh, higgins outdoors and uh, on facebook and instagram you uh, can see quite a bit of these projects that, that you've been doing. Um, saw you tearing out some old fence, I, th- I believe, a couple of weeks ago. You had some buddies over helping. What was that all about? Yeah, well, as you know, Terry, years ago, I had a captive herd of research whitetails. And to keep those captive deer in, you know, I had these uh, eight-foot fences on the farm, various pens. And when I got rid of those deer, you know, I planned to tear those fences out and, and turn it into habitat for the wild deer. But there was one area of about two acres that was fenced in with this eight foot fence. And I thought, you know what, this is a perfect opportunity to go into that little two acre section that's fenced off and, and plant all kinds of fruit trees and, and the fence would keep the wild deer off of from destroying it. So I went into that area and I planted uh, apples, crab apples, pears, chestnuts, persimmons uh what else do i have i've got some some lots of odds and ends stuff that are nowhere else on the farm chickasaw plum um chinese um chestnut chinese chestnuts sink i i don't even remember what they're called but some kind of chinese bush that puts off a nut kind of like a chestnut i am shocked you put anything on your farm that came from china well, I would never do that today, but you got to remember, <laughs> these things were planted uh, years ago. <laughs> so some of these trees actually, you know, were, were planted as like 
you know, three or four foot whips. And, and today they are like 15 foot tall, full trees producing fruit and have been for a few years. Um, lots of shrubs in there. Got some American cranberry, hazelnut. So these were all uh, in the old, the old pasture for the, uh, from the captive herd. So they've just yep. been dropping fruit or they're just now starting to drop fruit. No, they've been dropping fruit for years, but I wanted those trees to get established well enough that the wild deer wouldn't come and destroy them. I got you. And uh, there, there was a lot of small game, you know, the coons and the possums love those apples and such. And, and I kept the deer away, so they got them all. But uh, oh, I wrapped up this year's spring projects that I had on my list, and it was, you know, the weather was still cool. And had a Saturday there where a couple of friends uh, offered to help. And I thought, man, with, with the help I've got, I can get that fence down in one day. So, uh, West Elks, uh, you know, the general manager at Real World came over and, and James Morgan, a good friend of mine, and my son-in-law, Corey Hamilton. And uh, in half a day, it would have taken me a week to do this by myself. But in a half a day on a Saturday, we had that fence down, rolled up, fence post pulled. They were all piled up. And uh, we did that a, a week ago yesterday. And in the week since that fence has been out, I've looked back there from my house across the field uh, to that area, and I've seen deer three different times in that section that was once uh, fenced off from them. So, uh, so how's that going to change? How's that going to change the hunting? If do you, do you anticipate it changing the property any? Yeah, because where this fence comes out, it it creates a really good uh, fence point for a new stand, you know, that wasn't there before because it was all fenced off before. Gotcha. Um, so, so we got that fence out of the way, which opens up this inside corner for a good stand site. And then yesterday I went in there with Wes again, and we built a, just a stretch of fence. It's probably only about 25 yards long, but it's just a, a stretch of chain link fence. It's five foot tall. And what it does is it pushes those deer towards that inside corner. And I talk about taking good stands and making them great stands. And that's exactly what I did was there was a pretty wide travel corridor there on that inside corner where them deer could cut through. And we took an area that was probably 60 yards long where them deer could cut through. And then we made it 30 yards. So they got a 30 yard opening where they're going to have to funnel through there um, past that stand. And I've seen uh, you but, do but this are, with 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 I've seen you do this with old scrap fence and with trees. Yep. To where you're, if a deer needed to get through it or over it, they could, but mm-hmm. they're going to take the path of path of least resistance normally, and that's going to now be within bow range of one of your stands. Exactly, and once we built that fence, uh, then I did drop some trees that kind of laid parallel to the fence, so. You know, it just looks like a, a row of, of fallen trees, but in the middle of that, it, there is a fence. And it, it's just going to funnel the deer around the end of it. But this is one of those projects that I didn't think that I would get to this spring because I had so many other things. Right. Um, that gives me an additional really good stand side on the property, as well as it opens up all those trees we were talking about uh, that are producing mast. I mean, those trees are producing chestnuts right now and apples and crab apples pears and, and all that so there's just going to be new food sources at the, at the inside corner with a great stand location very easy to access um so just just another uh 
you know, little thing to make the property better than it was. Yeah, but how many times have probably us or our listeners, uh, you know, um, had a section of fence they cleaned out or their neighbor cleaned out a chain link fence or something that got thrown to the scrapyard or or whatever, um, or maybe, you know, dropped some trees. Uh, making that one stand site an awesome stand site just by funneling, you know, uh, where they have to take a few more steps around to either come into bow range or not allow them to easily get on your downwind side. It could be a game changer for a stand site. Yeah. And you know, the only thing I gained out of all this was one stand site. And actually I lost one too, because there was a stand I had just on the outside of the fence we tore down. Um, after we tore the fence down, I needed to eliminate that stand because of access. Uh, I was going to have to walk through too much cover to get to it. So I basically traded one stand for another stand. I didn't gain any more stands, but the one I'm gaining is better than the one I lost. And I probably, the the man hours that went into creating this one stand size, I I would hate to guess probably, uh, you know, if I count the planting of the trees and, and everything else that's gone on, you know, you were probably talking a hundred man hours to uh, to create this one stand, or and or make it better than what it was. I, I could have just hunted the spot as it was, but myself and, and my help probably put a hundred man hours into making it better than what it was. And and right now, I feel pretty confident that any deer that comes by is coming by within range of that stand. Nice. So what's your situation on your uh, your food plots this year? I know you got the last time we uh, did our uh, podcast, you had, had I believe I believe you just gotten all of your switchgrass planted and your miscanthus planted. What's the status of your food plot? I, I just got my food plots all planted this week. Um, finished those up on Wednesday, um, but then uh, today, well, what day was it? It rained all day today, some yesterday, and some the day before. And what I kind of fear a little bit is that I may have to replant my soybeans. What will happen a lot of times if you get a a big heavy rain after planting before those beans have germinated, um, that ground will crust over. Right. And that that soybean is not able to push through and, and, you know, fully germinate. If that happens, I'm probably going to be replanting my soybeans here. Uh, when it dries up, but we'll see what happens. Uh, but I got every one of my plots is planted now, so it's just a matter of getting them up and getting them going good. If yeah. that happens, and my field is my field is plowed. Um, we don't know till here because of the clay in Kentucky. But um, I plowed got got in the ground and plowed mine early, and it's been so wet. Um, I have not been able to uh, get in and work the ground and. Um, I wanted to spread lime and fertilizer today, but it was still too muddy. But I think I think it's a little bit of a blessing in disguise because I know for a fact that there were some guys that did get theirs in early, and we had a really hard frost last week here in Kentucky. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, for those guys that had stuff that had germinated, I'm going to guess it did some damage on that. It was so bad, Don, that the local nurseries – um, my wife and I went to get some garden plants and we can't find cucumbers or zucchini plants anywhere because ever, all the stores had their garden plants out and the frost hit them. So, uh, we're waiting for new shipments of all that stuff to come in. So 
Sometimes being early necessarily isn't the best thing if you're not sure about that weather. you got to plant based on the weather conditions, not the calendar. Right. And I know you guys have had more rain than we have, but we had a, a short window early when I got my switchgrass in in Miscanthus, and then it started raining, and then just this week it dried out. There was only about two or three days when anything could have been done before the rain started again, and, and I got all my plots in in that window. Hopefully, uh, I mean, the time, according to the calendar, was right, but the weather's been a little bit screwy again this year. So, uh, you know, hopefully everything's going to germinate fine and but I'll people, be ready to roll. But People have to understand that there's still plenty of time. I mean, oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've planted soybeans even into uh, middle of June before as the last resort. And, uh, you know, there there is some disadvantages that you see with that, but it still creates the food source you're looking for. So it right. never it never fails as early as I ever get to work ground and try to get ready and get ahead of the game. Usually I end up planting Memorial Day. Um, it's a three-day weekend. I'm off work and just usually how it works out. So it would not surprise me if, uh, if I'm planting in another two weeks. But if I get the chance, I'll get it in earlier. You know, I bet there's probably more food plots planted on Memorial Weekend than any other time, and I base that on experience with the – you know, real world selling the seed and I keep an inventory of seed in my house and have people coming here to, to buy seed all the time and it never fails. Memorial weekend and a few days leading up to it, it the traffic is just nonstop as people want to come get their seed and plant it Memorial weekend. Yep. And that's a great time to do it. It's not too late. That's actually a really great time to do it. So all right. Well, I want to I want to leave a little bit. We've talked about this and um, you know, during hunting season, we're going to probably spend more time in this segment, but uh we have so many questions. We're going to try to get through more questions uh this week. So if you don't have anything else, I think we just need to move on to the buyfarm.com property of the week and let's focus on uh a few more sections. Is that okay with you? Yeah, I've got uh, a number of questions uh, lined up for this week, so uh I'm ready to move on if you are. All right. This is the Biofarm.com Property of the Week. Biofarm.com is your source for farm, recreational properties, rural homes, and more. Now, here is Don Higgins with this week's featured property. All right. This week's featured property is 120 acres in Fayette County, Illinois. Uh, anyone that doesn't know where Fayette County is, it's... Uh, lays right on Route 70, Interstate 70, um, just west of Effingham a little bit. Um, this property sits in the middle of a big section, uh, but it has great access to get into the property. Uh, there's a trail system throughout the property, so you've got easy access to all parts of the ground. Um, there's about a seven or so acre ag field uh, on one end that can give you a little bit of income, or you could use it as a, a food plot for for the wildlife, um, there are five other established smaller food plots scattered throughout the property. Um, there's a little bit of, uh, of terrain to the property, some elevation change and such. There's some timbered ridges, uh, which would be great roosting areas for turkeys. Um, this is also a great area for deer. Uh, the uh, Kaskaskia River flows right through uh, uh, Fayette County, and there's always some giant bucks to uh, through that area. Um, the, uh, the 
corners of the property have all been surveyed so you can easily find you know the property lines and such and there is a little bit of marketable timber uh, on one end of the property as well but if you're interested in the property uh, you can find it on the biofarm.com website just look for the 120 acres in Fayette County uh, you can also call agent Tim Probst who can uh, answer your questions he, Tim would be glad to show you the property uh, Tim's phone number is 217-821-0882 and uh, you know again it, it won't be far off of Interstate 70 so access uh, if you're traveling very far if this is a property you're you're looking to buy uh, and not actually live on uh, you should have good access down Interstate 70 and then just a little ways off uh, to get to the property so Give Tim a call if you're interested. Again, Tim Probst's phone number, 217-821-0882. And we want to we thank Biofarm.com. They've been a huge supporter of this podcast. And, uh, you know, no matter what your land needs are, um, visit their website. And they have a lot of agents that are working hard to uh, try to identify what the you know, we, we focus more on hunting properties here, but they try to focus on all kinds of different properties for people for uh, recreation and outdoor or uh, rural living. So uh, give biofarm.com a, a look on their website if you're if you're interested in purchasing or selling land. And right now it's a buyer's market. The corona situation has made this a buyer's market. So uh, if uh, you're interested in buying a property, now's the time to do it. Lots of advantages as far as financing and such, you know, with low interest rates That's exactly and right. uh, motivated buy or motivated sellers. So if you're interested, now's the time to, to act. Yeah, I agree. So thanks to biofarm.com for their support and uh, visit their website, biofarm.com. All right. So uh, let's, uh, let's focus in on some questions. Do you have some good ones today? I did. You know, I've been, uh, we've got dozens of questions that have been submitted to us and, uh, I've been sorting through them and trying to get questions that are relevant to the, the time of the year it is. Um, so, you know, I've dug back some of the questions this week were submitted, uh, some time back. I'm guessing some of the folks that are going to hear their name called, um, probably thought we forgot about them and aren't going to use their question. But, uh, what we do is try to, to focus on questions that are pertinent to the time of the year. So uh, I'll get started. The first question comes from Brandon Erickson. Brandon is from Chatfield, Minnesota. Uh, Brandon says, Don and Terry, let's talk trees. Oh, good. I'm wondering what, pardon me. I said, good. I want to hear your answer to this one because okay. I'm in the same boat. Yeah. Well, we'll see what we can do. Uh, Don and Terry, let's talk with trees. I'm wondering what kind of trees you'd like to plant on your properties when trying to improve the habitat for whitetails. I've been looking at buying some white oak and apple trees to plant on my family's property I hunt. Do you have any other suggestions of some trees that you like to have on your farms that provide food for deer as well as the possibility of having some timber value many years down the road? Are there any specific apple trees that you have found deer prefer over others? And have you had luck with other types of fruit trees that you would suggest any other tips or advice from things you've learned from the years you planted trees thanks for the podcast and keep the episodes coming good luck to both of you this season well brandon uh as you may or may not know i actually owned a tree planting uh 
service. Uh, Higgins Outdoors was a conservation tree planting service where we planted trees all over the Midwest. I probably planted more trees than anyone in the hunting industry, literally millions. Um, also owned a nursery where we grew shade and landscape trees as well as potted trees for habitat and such. So I'm kind of, I've experimented a lot with tree plantings on my property over the years. And I found some things that work and some that don't. Um, right out of the gate, you mentioned white oak and apple trees. Um, both are, are good options. I just talked about earlier in this podcast some apple trees that I planted years ago. Uh, one thing I would suggest uh, when it comes to apples is that uh, you look for disease-resistant varieties. Deer will eat any apple, so you don't need to, to look for an apple that's more attractive to deer, per se. What you need to do is find disease-resistant varieties that will work in your region. And, you know, there's a number of different uh, diseases and funguses and such that will affect apples, um, different regions of the country, uh, different uh, pests, um, or, or experience different pest uh, problems. So my suggestion would be to, to look at what uh, the problems are in your area for apple trees. For instance, if you live in an area with a lot of cedar trees, you're going to want to plant a variety of apples that is resistant to the cedar apple rust fungus. Uh, it, it's a, uh, a fungus that goes back and forth between cedar trees and apple trees and will actually kill both. So um, you're going to want to look for disease-resistant apples uh, and plant multiple species or multiple varieties of apples. This cross-pollination of multiple varieties will really help your yield. Uh, mix in some crab apples. Crab apples are great pollinators for apples and will really increase your crop. Um, but, but to be honest, I actually like pears better than apples because pears are uh, easier to to maintain. Uh, there's not really much you need to do with them. Uh, a lot of times apples, to get the most out of them, you need to do some pruning and such. But pears, basically, I've just I've planted them and left them. And I actually think that deer prefer eating pears over apples from what I've seen on my place. Um, another thing, uh, or a couple other species that I like, I like chestnuts. Uh, chestnuts are not uh, real common across most of the country, but deer absolutely love them. There's been a big rage as, as far as uh, Dunstan chestnuts. The Dunstan chestnut is supposed to be a... Uh, a hybrid cross between American chestnuts and Chinese chestnuts. I actually did an article for North American Whitetail a few years ago where I interviewed a couple of the uh, chestnut experts. One was at the Ohio State University and one was from the University of Missouri. And both of these experts seem to believe that the Dunstan chestnut is really just a Chinese chestnut with some fancy marketing behind it. Um, I'm not a, ch a chestnut expert, so I can't say, but I can tell you that today when I plant chestnut trees, I just plant Chinese chestnuts. Chinese yeah. chestnuts will save you a bunch of money and they do, they do just as well, if not better. Now is the chestnut so, the one that it's, it's the nut inside of the real prickly green thing when yeah. it's growing and then it opens up? Yep, exactly. Cause, Cause I've heard stories about people that have that type of tree in their yard and they'll yep. be out there mowing, and just in the amount of time they do a lap in their yard, the deer come in and then leave when they come around with the mower. That's how much they're eating those those chestnuts. 
out of out, that, of, out of people's yards. That's absolutely accurate. They, I, I mean, there is nothing I don't believe that a deer or wildlife craves more. And I'll, I'll share a story back when I had the, the greenhouses and was growing potted trees for habitat projects. Uh, one spring, we had uh, all these different sections of these pots where we had planted the various acorns. You know, we'd have a section that might have a thousand or fifteen hundred. Uh, swamp white oaks and then right next to it would be you know a thousand or so bur oaks and next to it would be you know a, a big group of white oaks for example and, and then a group of persimmons and then i had a a section that i think it had 500 chestnuts that had been planted in these pots well what happened was the squirrels got into the greenhouse and they dug up every single chestnut. They did not hurt. They did not find the acorns at all. No, no species of acorns did they bother whatsoever. But those squirrels got in there and dug up every last uh, chestnut and, and ate them and left with them. And huh. the only nut that I was ever able to find was one squirrel had dug up a chestnut. And then he went over and he, he buried it in a pot that had an oak acorn in it. <laughs> Trying and to hide what it. I had was a, yeah, and when it grew, I had a pot that had the oak and had the chestnut both in it. And uh, I know it was from a squirrel just moving that nut. But somehow, those squirrels, even though those nuts were buried in those pots, in the potting mix, those squirrels somehow sniffed them things out and knew exactly which pots had them chestnuts. I'm telling you, a chestnut is a real attraction to deer. Um, another, one, another good one is persimmons. Especially, it's not so much in the south where there's a lot of persimmon trees already, but if, when you start getting up in the northern range where persimmons are very rare, if you can have a grove of persimmons on your property, um, you're basically going to have the only ones in the whole area, and you'll draw deer in like a magnet. Uh, one tip I would offer is to uh, p plant your, your mass-bearing trees like this plant them around the edges of your food plot instead of just scattering them random all over your whole property. Uh, if you would do that, you know, then the deer can feed in a thousand different places on your property. But when you plant those mass bearing trees around the edge of your, your food plot, you're, you're just enhancing that feeding area and you're drawing more deer into that one location. You know, it becomes like a, the magnet with, with all the food. It's the all you can eat buffet with all these different, you know, uh, uh, foods right there, and some of them being foods that cannot be found anywhere else in the area, it really enhances the attraction of that plot by having these these different trees around the edge. Just more the diversity. Other thing that I would, exactly. The other thing that I would suggest is that when you plant your trees, these mass-bearing trees, is that you do it in uh, groups. So in other words, don't go out and plant like one persimmon here and one chestnut over there and one apple there. Group them together for pollination reasons. So, you know, plant a half a dozen apples together on this side of your plot. And then, uh, you know, maybe on the other side of the plot, plant, you know, a half a dozen or so persimmons next to each other. And then someplace else, you know, maybe a grove of chestnut trees. But group them by the species it'll really help with the pollination and they'll produce more fruit that way. So I know but, your, uh, I know your answer on food plot size is as much as you can, but mm -hmm. in, in trees, when we're talking about stuff that's pollinating with each other, what's the minimum that we need? Like if, if I want to go plant some pears on the, on the, 
uh, opposite side of the food plot from my elevated blind. Do I need at least three? Do I need at least five? And then say, say I want to do pears, chestnuts, and apples, um, but I got limited room. What what do I need to look for as a minimum of, of how many of each? And, and I know it's as many as you can, but from a pollination mm-hmm. standpoint, you need to have at least a certain amount, I assume. Yeah, I like to plant at least five or six okay. of each species next to each other. And again, when you come when it comes to apples, then you want to mix up. They're all apple species, but then you want to mix up the varieties. You know, so you might have some uh, one Liberty apple and one Granny Smith apple and crab apple. You know, one wine sap and and the crab apple or two in the mix. And you know, you know having these different varieties, they'll cross pollinate each other, and uh, it'll, it'll really increase your yield. Gotcha. So, yeah, that's that's a great uh, question because I've been asking you some of the same questions for my place too because that's that's going to be phase two of the project that I'm in the middle of after I move the the main soybean field on the farm next year is to put mm-hmm. in put in a row of trees. So great question. Well, when that time comes, Terry, just hit me up and I'll steer you in the right direction and help you find the tree you're looking for. Good deal. But, uh, all right, thanks for that question, Brandon. We'll have a uh, Chasing Giants t-shirt coming your way. Uh, Move on to the next question. Uh, This one comes from Jeremy Sluter from Abilene, Kansas. Jeremy says, Don and Terry, in your experience with habitat management, have you determined if there is an approximate percentage of a property that should be put into food plots, bedding, et cetera, and in the food plots if a certain amount of perennials versus annuals? I have listened to media from another wildlife company claiming after their 25 years of doing it, you should have 5 to 10% of a property in food plots, and half of that should be perennials. I'm not sure how the 5 to 10% could be all-inclusive when every property is different. Example, one property can have a large amount of ag fields. I need to switch pages here as I read this question. Surrounding it, another could be mostly wooded. Just curious in your years of habitat consulting experience, what have you found on this matter, if anything? I am working with mostly ag fields with creek timber running through them and a little bit of pasture. Just wanted to make sure in my long-term habitat plan that I carve out enough for food plots, bedding to hold deer year-round. I enjoy the podcast. Thanks, Jeremy. It sounds like Jeremy's heard some of the people that try to offer universal advice no matter what the people's situation is yeah for sure um (laughs) i'm gonna try to be politically correct don't let's hear it Uh, come on don we're in we're in the times of corona i want to hear (laughs) i'm gonna egg you on i I think jeremy is pretty has kind of answered his own question yeah he uh he he says you know that um every property is different and he's right on the money absolutely Um, there, there is no hard and fast rule on percentage of anything. Um, you know, I tell my, my consulting clients all the time that, you know, we got to look at the weakest link, not just on your property, but in your area. You know, I live in an area where there's very similar to what Jeremy's described here with uh, mostly ag fields with creek and timber running through them. And around here, cover is the key. Cover is the weakest link. Right. If you've got the cover, you're going to have the deer. Whereas, well, whereas my area, it's the exact opposite. 
Uh, we right. got we got big check uh, sections of connecting timber across who knows how many farms with limited food. Completely apples and oranges. In your area, Terry, if you had a 40-acre property and you could get 20 acres of that property in food or 50%, that'd be fantastic. Right. And if you had a 40-acre property where I'm at, you would want the majority of that in cover. 40 acres of food in your neck of the woods isn't going to help you any until late season. <laughs> and it, Yeah, exactly. And if it's not situated right, it wouldn't do you much good then. Right. So, you know, it's all relative to to the area you live in. There is no hard and fast rules. Anyone that's trying to throw out a hard and fast rules is, you know, doesn't know much about laying out a property for, for deer hunting. Um, perennials versus annuals. I don't get it. Well, yeah, I, I don't either. Um <laughs> I'm a big fan of yeah. I'm trying to be politically correct here, Terry, and I'm thinking of the right words to keep from stepping on too many toes too hard. But uh, yeah. I'm a big promoter of a well balanced food plot program. So, in other words, you want high quality food available to the deer on your property 365 days a year, and that requires diversity. So you're going to need some greens, and you're going to need some grains. Um, you're going to need some legumes that will green up early in the spring. Um, but to, again, to go and lay out a figure that 50% needs to be annual and 50% perennial makes no sense to me. Um, you got to look at what's available in your area. I mean, if, if your property is right next to a big dairy farmer, for example, who has, you know, a hundred acres of alfalfa, you don't need to provide that. Let the deer get that there. You can't compete with that 100-acre alfalfa field anyway. So why even try? You need to provide something different that the deer can't find on the neighbor. Um, and I guess that's my best answer in a nutshell. I'll let you take it away, Terry. Uh, it's It's people trying to sell something. And there's, unfortunately, in this industry, uh, people without enough integrity to... I'll flat out lay it out. I, I still believe it's people that without integrity that'll try to sell something that they're affiliated with or something that might not be the right solution. And I had I had probably six people just this week wanting to buy soybeans from Real World, and I told them not to because I thought it was the wrong decision. I mean, I would love to sell them a product, and I still tried to sell them something different, but you know, people calling us wanting a quarter acre of beans, it's not going to work. And you just have to, unfortunately in this industry, you have to look past the motives or deep into what the motives of what the answer is. Are they really mm -hmm. being honest with you and why are they saying this? And do they have the research to back it up? So again, food plot diversity was the absolute game changer when I'd started transitioning from killing 120 inch deer to killing deer um over five years old um you know in kentucky we you can usually if if you're a decent hunter you can kill a, a 120 125 inch eight pointer three year old um but to get to that next level food plot diversity was one of the biggest game changers i had and don it wasn't necessarily i think as m much about attraction it was when you have the diversity 
I'm a firm believer that they overlap and take some of the, when you have limited food in your area, having diversity is just like interconnecting puzzle pieces. So instead of those deer absolutely annihilating my soybean plot when they first germinate, having a legume next to it helps pull those deer off of the, that soybean. Um, so not only does the diversity give them different things to eat in different areas, but it also all works together to disperse the deer in that one area so they're not hammering one thing at one time and completely wiping out the plot. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I really think um, outside of learning how to hunt wind and understanding that intrusion kills most opportunities of killing a mature buck, food plot diversity has been the biggest game changer for me. And why somebody would say it has to be a perennial or it has to be an annual, um, my jaded opinion is they're probably trying to sell something specific. That's Mm -hmm. my guess. I don't know. Well, I think you pretty much hit the nail on the head there. So (laughs) unless you have more to to add, I think we'll move on. I think he answered his own question. I think he was already seeing through the, through the sales pitch on it, but it's a great question. Um, the the biggest the, the best analogy I've ever heard you make, Don, is look at your property as one square on a checkerboard or a chessboard, mm-hmm. and make your square. How do you, how do you say it? You explained this in your master class a little bit. You have to make your square different than the other squares, right? Yeah, think well, of your your property as one square on a giant checkerboard of other squares. And make your property as much different and as much better than every other square as possible. So even and though you can that do other that square through the might and through the food you provide. Yeah. So even though that other square, you might have a, a a hunter with a food plot on there. How are you designing your square to? What did you say earlier to um, provide what isn't there? Yep. Yeah. That's that's the best analogy I've ever heard you make on it. Well, thank you. Good question, Jeremy. Well, yeah, thanks, Jeremy. You have a Chasing Giants t-shirt coming your way. We'll move on to the next question. The next one comes from Robert Bergerson from Plainfield, Connecticut. I was just in Connecticut, uh, Robert, uh, this spring doing some consulting out your way. Um, Anyway, Robert says, this spring has been wet and cold due to above-average rain and below-average temperatures here in the Northeast. Same thing we've experienced in the Midwest. Um, how long can I wait to plant my real-world clover and chicory seed mix and still expect it to mature? Well, Robert, the uh, clover seed and chicory seed, uh, it can be planted basically um, when it's dormant. You can frost seed it. You don't have to wait for the temperatures to warm up. Um, yeah. it, it can be planted spring or fall. So, you my advice to you is plant it the first chance you get. Hey, if your plot had been prepared, uh, you know, in the fall before you could have frost seeded it, you know, back in, in March and, uh, it, it should be greening up now. That's my favorite way to plant clover is to frost seed it. But a lot of clover gets planted in the fall as well. And it'll do fine then too. As long as you get the, the rain and you don't get too early of a frost, give it a chance to get established a little bit. But, uh, that uh, that's my answer for that one. Anything you want to add, Terry? I'm going to ask a another level of question to Robert's uh, question, if that's all right for you, since you you know more about this than I do. 
Um, the last part of his question where he says expect it to mature, um, I want to dive into that a little bit with you. Technically, we don't want clover to mature, do we? That's why we mow clover is to always keep fresh growth coming up. So I think we can. you can basically plant clover at any time of the year with moisture. Even in the middle of summer, you could plant it. But we don't necessarily want that plant to fully mature and put a seed head on it. We want to mow it and keep young tender growth. Is that is that right? Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, that's a fantastic point, Terry. I'm glad you brought that up. And I'd missed that when I started rattling on to answer his question. I, I missed the most important part. You, you don't want a legume like clover alfalfa. Um, I, I guess you do want soybeans are a legume, and you do want those to mature. But uh, clover and alfalfa, you do not want that plant to mature because when it matures, it loses its nutrient value. Um so with clover, when it, you start seeing those white uh, flowers or blooms, seed heads, you'll want to mow it. Um, and basically on my clover, I mow it about once every 30 days throughout the summer. And that's what you're going to want to do. And, and you always keep it in a stage of regrowth. You mow it back and it starts regrowing. And that's when it, it's the most nutrient dense that it's going to be and provide your, your deer the nutrients that they need and they crave. So that's a good point, Terry. You don't want that clover to fully mature. So when you start seeing those, at least what I do here in Kentucky is um, I mow. Um, I can control my height a little bit better. with a, I have a subcompact uh, tractor with a bush hog on it, and I can uh, adjust my top length to where I can keep it up high. And when I start seeing about half of that field with a seed head on it or – uh, you made a really good point about this here recently. I know it's getting off on a little bit of a tangent, but we're, we're really quick to throw herbicide at clover. Uh, a lot of times if we maintenance a, a plot uh, um, good with uh, mowing, we don't have to use the herbicide on it. So by, by knocking, knocking the top of that off and allowing that clover to keep bushing out, filling out, it'll actually choke out a lot of the weeds. Yeah, it's just like your yard. You know, if you didn't mow your yard, weeds could take over. But by keeping it mowed, uh, mowing stimulates the grass. Mowing a weed actually sets it back and can kill it and, and will eventually kill it. Mowing grass clover actually stimulates it to grow. So mowing is the best way to to maintain a clover plot. It's, it's way better than herbicides. So I do have a clover plot that I've already planted, and I have one yet to do this year just because I'm waiting for it to dry out. So I'm not I'm not concerned about waiting too late. Um, I'm concerned about having a weed-free seed bed to start it. That's, that's the uh, thing I think you need to be focused about. And then maintenance right. after that point. Good question. Yep. All right, we're going to move on to the next question. It comes from Zach Roller from Fairview Heights, Illinois. Um, Zach says, hello, Don and Terry. My question for you guys is about switchgrass and bedding. My family just recently purchased 54 acres in Hardin County, Illinois. The farm has switchgrass planted on it. And when we bought the farm, we were advised that the switchgrass needed to be burned. Is burning switchgrass beneficial to the habitat? Will it grow back on its own or do we need to purchase more seed to replant? If replanting is needed, you can can you broadcast seed switchgrass, or does it need to be tilled and planting that way? Thank you, Zach Roller. Um, 
Zach, that's a good question. I probably answer more questions about switchgrass and, and native grasses every week than all other questions combined. I forward them um, on to you. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, so does West Indiana. So all the native grass questions from real world comes to me. Um, but but I've planted thousands of acres of, of warm season native grasses, so I guess I'm the guy to answer them. But yeah, the first question is: Burning switchgrass beneficial? Absolutely, it is. Burning switchgrass does three things. It uh, it actually stimulates that grass to make it grow. Um, it's very similar to mowing your yard. You cut that grass in your yard, and what happens? Three or four days later, you can't ever tell it it, it was mowed because it stimulates it to grow back. And fire does the same thing with switchgrass. Fire also burns up any weeds and weed seed that you have there. So if your switchgrass stand is not a pure stand, you've got a lot of weeds growing there, and those weeds go to seed, that fire will burn up that weed seed and take care of some of that competition. Um, the fire will also burn any tree seedlings that are started, uh, which is very common. It's just, again, I go back to the yard situation. If you didn't mow your yard, First, it would turn slowly turn into a weed batch, and then slowly woody vegetation like tree saplings and, and such would get started in it. And it's the same thing will happen with a switchgrass planting. But a regular mowing will burn up those seedlings. It will actually boil the cambium layer, which is the layer between the bark and the wood. The cambium layer is where the nutrients you know travel back and forth, up and down from the roots to the leaves. And by boiling that labor or that layer or burning it, uh, you actually kill the tree. And uh, so that's the other thing it does. Um, and it also burns up that old thatch. You know, if you didn't ever burn a switchgrass planting, that uh, dead grass would just build up and build up on the ground. And um, by burning about every other year or every third year, you, you'll burn up that thatch. Uh, you'll get rid of the weed and tree competition and you'll stimulate those those grasses the next question is will it grow back on its own or do we need to purchase more seed and replant it will grow back on its own again no different than mowing your yard um, in fact the year that you burn it uh, you'll find your stand will be the tallest and thickest and then it will slowly kind of peter out the next year next couple of years but you burn it and boom it comes right back and it, it stimulates it um, next question, if replanting is needed, can you broadcast seed switchgrass? Does it need to be tilled and planted that way? Well, you don't need to replant, but on a new planting, um, my favorite way of planting switchgrass is preparing the plot the year ahead of time. Um, going into the fall and winter months, that, that plot should be ready to, for the seed. Um, and then come back in like February and, and frost seed just by broadcasting seed right onto that ground and it doesn't matter if it's frozen ground or even if there's snow on the ground you can just broadcast that switchgrass seed right to where you want it as long as that plot has been prepared ahead of time anything to add there terry uh, it's native grasses are not anywhere close to anything we do in kentucky um we just we, it's not something that's actively used but i can tell zach is um, you're not alone with being new to this. The popularity um, out in the open ag country states of people wanting to use this product is growing uh, exponentially. And um, it's new to a lot of people. 
Um, my, my, my just warning to you is the seed is very expensive. So you have to do your research and understand what you're doing before you just go in and fly by the seat of your pants because it is not the same as a food plot seed. Um, we get people that get all panicked because they can't see anything germinated in 10 days after planting. This stuff works completely different, um, after you plant it, um, because, you know, it's doing work underground, uh, that's going to make it stand, um, during the bad weather. So, um, I know Don wrote a series of blogs on the real world website that is trying to help educate people that are getting into native grasses, uh, as part of their management program. Um, because there's so many people that are, are new to it and you just have to understand this is different than managing just regular food plots and throwing clover or soybeans out. Uh, from a chemical standpoint, from a burning standpoint, from a planting standpoint. So just uh, find your resources, do your research, because the investment in this product is pretty high. But if you maintain it, it'll last for a long time. So that investment gets amortized over a lot of years um, if you do it right. So just do your research ahead of time. Very good point. So thanks for your question, Zach. And you too will be getting a real-world uh, T-shirt. I'm going to move on to the last question. This is a pretty unique uh, uh, question that was submitted by Bob Miller from Bay City, uh, Michigan. I know where and, that's at. Uh, you do know where that's at? Mm-hmm. Have you been there? Yep, I've been there. Well, that's where Bob Miller's from, and uh, I've been wanting to use his question for quite a while, and finally I just decided I was tired of skipping over it. I was going to use it this week. Uh, Bob says, Mr. Don and Mr. Terry. I know that you, Don, have talked previously about what not wanting to hunt and kill bucks as they come running by during gun season with their tongues hanging out. <laughs> you want to kill them on their terms. I know you have never, I know you never laid eyes on, but was hunting the famous Luke Brewster buck and knew he was around. This leading to my question. I want to stop right here and and uh, <laughs> clear the air on on this. Luke Brewster, the, the world record buck that he shot a couple years back, um, was shot a few miles from a property that I had leased, and I was hunting another giant buck, giant non-typical. I thought at the time when Luke shot his buck that he shot the buck I was hunting. It turned out that it was a different buck. Um, I did not realize it at the time until later when I seen some trail camera pictures Right. previous year trail camera pictures of Luke's buck and I had previous trail camera pictures uh, of the buck I was hunting two totally different bucks yeah it was um, close to, it was so, close to both of us um yeah. I was I was in Illinois the night it was shot and it was like the plague spreading that quick coming across the, with this giant buck and and we both thought it might be the same one but uh when those when the we got access to the trail camera pictures it, it was not but uh um but great story anyway yeah and i just wanted to clear the uh, air up there uh with bob's question that yeah. when it when it happened i did make a statement on a podcast that i was hunting that buck and I thought I was at the time, but, but once I once all the details were clear, it became obvious that the buck I was hunting was a giant, no doubt about it, well over well into the two hundreds, non typical. But it was a different buck than the, the one Luke ended up shooting. Right. Um, so moving on, um, Bob says Don and Terry, 
what has been your biggest life lesson while in the deer woods? Was it a certain buck that sparked the fire that you killed? Or maybe you were hunting a certain buck, like the Brewster buck, that eluded you in the past, which just drove your passion even more. We all, in a point in time, have had that aha moment that drives us all. So what exactly was yours? How did it lead you both to be where you are at today? You want to take that one first, Terry? Well, uh, where I'm at today is nowhere close to where Don is today. And the, the biggest thing I have to understand is that's okay. Um, my goals and what I set out to do every year are at a different level than where Don is at. And it's really easy. And I even fight myself doing it some. It's really easy to, um, you know, see success of others and get um, upset or jealous of why you're not able to do that. And I had to learn a long time ago that, you know, everybody's goals, everybody's stage is a little bit different. Enjoy the process for what you want out of it. Um, if, if I tried to hold myself with the property time and um, access that Don does, um, I, would, I would get burnt out and really upset with this hobby and this passion really quickly. Um, so the best thing to do is, um, I think, enjoy the process. Um, enjoy the sport for what it is and where you're at at that point set a goal for where you want to be and don't deviate on that goal. Um, even though my goals aren't probably at the level Don's are, um, you know, I, I still have not shot a net booner. Um, that's, that's a goal that I want to try to achieve and will work my tail off to try to do it. Um, but I'm just at a different stage of where, than where Don is. And if you try to compare, um, your success and your status with what other people are in the industry, um, I think you'll get um, really jaded, um, really jealous um, very fast, and it, it'll it'll probably put you in the wrong mindset to enjoy the sport for what it really is. That's a very good uh, perspective to have, Terry. I mean, I'm, um, I, and I'm sure there's people, I mean, I, I've shot some very nice deer, um, but I'm sure there's still people that look at me like I look at Don, and there's probably people that are just starting that wants to shoot their first 120-inch deer. Um, I think all of them are great. You just um, you have to you have to enjoy the process for where you're at at that time. Yep, for sure. And I'm a few years older than you, so uh, you got plenty of time to catch up. So, <laughs> um, the question Bob had: uh, what what has been your biggest life lesson while in the deer woods? For me, the biggest life lesson. And it's it's one that I've it's taken a lot of years to uh, to settle into my head, I guess. And but as time goes by, it becomes more and more clear and obvious to me. When I was younger, deer hunting was like the most important thing on the on the planet. I mean, nothing else. Um, uh, I was here. I was put here to hunt deer and hunt big bucks, and and that was the most important thing to me. But as time has gone by and I've matured as a person as much as anything, deer hunting has become, it's still what I'd love to do, but on the list of priorities, deer hunting keeps slipping down, you know, a notch. Every once in a while, you know, 
it'll take a, it'll slip further. And I don't ever see it coming back to the top. It's only, it's going to continue to drop. And what I'm getting at is there's a lot of things in life more important than deer. Um, you know, I, I've probably lost a lot of friends just over deer hunting because they didn't take it as serious as I did. And man, if she wasn't in it the way I am, you wasn't going to the woods with me. So, um, I just let those those friendships kind of wilter, if you will, in favor of chasing deer. And, you know, people, I said recently that one of the greatest things that uh, deer hunting has done for me is the people that has brought into my life, the friends um, that I've met through deer hunting. Um, people are way more important than deer hunting. And, and I didn't realize that for a lot of years, and I have for several years now. Um, there, there wasn't the aha moment that, that Bob talks about, but just slowly over time I've seen, and I'm as passionate a deer hunter as you're ever going to meet, but at the same time, I've come to realize there's a whole lot of things that are more important. Um, so I, I guess my biggest life lesson is getting my priorities in order and pushing deer hunting down a few notches along the way. But Bob, I think that I can speak for Don uh, with what I'm about to say is that um, when we both have gone through the cycle of using this sport selfishly or using this sport to um, uh, make a difference in someone else, the more opportunities have, have become available for both Don and I. Um, so it's almost like a thing where, you know, we kind of change the perspective and move the priority away. It's actually come full circle and helped us more. Um, I don't know if you can speak more to that or not, but I can say honestly that when I'm not as concerned about me in this whole thing and um, um, trying to look at more of the big picture of using this as an opportunity to do something for others, and help others, and um, I've 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 been more successful as an outdoorsman, and um, more opportunities have presented themselves for me through that. Absolutely, God knows our heart, and I, I think He knows the desires of our heart, and He, he rewards us. Um, you know, when we do things right. So, so, so one more thing to clarify, Bob, you're correct that Don does not want to kill a buck with a gun running by with his tongue hanging out. I have absolutely no problem with that. <laughs> and I'm fine with that. You know? it doesn't, a, a lot of people mistakenly think that because, you know, I hunt and, and basically shoot big bucks and that I only want to hang out with people that shoot big bucks and I look down on others. I don't look down on others. Um, maybe I did at one time, um, but I've come to value uh, d people's differences. I, I don't expect people to be like me. I don't expect every deer hunter to uh, let the same bucks walk that I walk. I let walk. I don't expect them to use the same weapons that I use. I don't expect them to hunt the same, use the same hunting methods that I use. I've come to respect other hunters, and, and especially in recent years, I guess, as, again, as I've matured as a person as much as as a deer hunter, um, you know, God made us all different. 
he didn't make us all the same. I mean, life would be pretty boring if we were all the same. So, you know, that's another big life lesson that I've taken uh, from the deer woods over time is learn to appreciate the differences in others, not expect everyone to be just like me. You good with that, Terry? You ready to move on? Because Bob ain't done yet. Bob's got another oh, pair Bob's of Bob's got another one, okay. Yeah. Secondly, uh, this is from Bob's uh, submission. Bob says, secondly, faith, family, and hunting is what you both live by. So what are one or two of your favorite Bible verses? You guys each have one or two that help you along the way with your daily life, or maybe go back to one of your, of your ever feeling down and out. Thanks, guys. Look forward to each and every podcast. You're going to put me on the spot here. You want me to go first? Yeah, go ahead. Um, favorite Bible verse. Bob, several years ago, I had the uh, honor and privilege of interviewing Matt McPherson uh, with Matthew's Archery, who is a very devout Christian. And... Um, the interview I had was unlike any that I'd ever done. And Matt shared a scripture with me that, that he lives by, and, and I'll never forget it. And, and since that day, this scripture has been on my mind very often. And it comes from the book of Luke. And the scripture is, to, to whom much is given, much is expected. And Matt, you know, described to me, uh, he, he knows he's been very blessed as a businessman uh, with Matthews Archery. Um, but but those blessings come, you know, with a responsibility. Um, Matt has taken many of the profits uh, from Matthews and done fantastic things all over the world that you'll never hear him brag about. Um, you know, they, they've dug countless water wells in these third world countries and then sent missionaries in, fully paid for by Matthews and supported by Matthews. Um, these water wells bring in these people from the, these impoverished areas uh, for fresh drinking water, and then the missionaries are there to spread the, the gospel to these folks as they come in for their drinking water. And, uh, you know, as, as I did that, and this interview was done well over 10 years ago probably, but it stuck with me. To whom much is given, much is expected. And so, you know, I feel like in the hunting industry, um, especially in the whitetail uh, portion of the hunting industry, I've been extremely blessed. I, I was blessed to, uh, you know, be born and raised in an area that, that has not only deer, but big deer. Um, I was blessed to, to have a father that took me, took time to take me hunting uh, when I was a kid, even though he was not a hunter himself. Um, I, I was blessed when Gordon Whittington and North American Whitetail allowed me to write my first article nearly 25 years ago. And each time that a door is opened in, in this, in the hunting industry or just in the outdoors, uh, you know, I, I just feel like it, it's a blessing that I owe something to others. Um, I, I just have it on my heart to share, share these blessings with others. So, that that is probably my favorite scripture in the entire Bible, uh, in the book of Luke. Um, I think it's chapter twelve, uh, and the verse is, "To whom much is given, much is expected." Terry, you got one? 
Well, I'm going to answer it a little bit different way and not a specific verse, but more of a, um, I think it's a series of probably about uh, off the top of my head, maybe five or six verses out of Acts chapter 15. And it's um, it's where Paul and Barnabas were preparing for their missionary journey, and they got in this huge argument. And uh, I, one of the versions of the Bible actually talks about, I, I forget how they word it, but um, um, they, they got into a real argument. And um, the lesson that I, I constantly have to remind myself of is, um, you know, I have uh, running businesses is what I do um, and helping run businesses like real world. And um, when I grew up as a preacher's son, I saw a side of the church that most people don't see. And that is the backdoor boardroom arguments, drama, politics that go on like they go on in so many churches. And it really jaded me as I got to be an older teenager as my dad would have to move or there would be so much drama in a church that, okay, we're leaving here and going to this other church. And we kept moving and moving and moving. And it became to the point that church wasn't church. It was my dad's employer that I couldn't stand. And it wasn't till I got a lot older that I had to really understand that when people invest and they donate time for stuff, they get very passionate about things. And unfortunately, human nature uh, creates these arguments that creates these dramas where people look at things differently. And the, the lesson that you get out of this Acts chapter, in Acts chapter 15 is that even though Paul and Barnabas didn't agree with each other, they had a fundamental difference in something because Barnabas had bailed on Paul on one of the last journeys and went home. They still recognized the mission or the thing that needed to be done, the overall goal. And they separated and went their different ways and still got the job done. They just did it a different way. And I, I don't know how many times, especially you know, even Don and I over the years, there's been times that our relationship has been even very rocky and um, it's lessons that both of us have had to learn is what is the true objective here? Are we going to focus on how we don't agree on things or are we going to focus on getting what needs to be done? And, you know, there's a, Don, Don made a post on Facebook tonight that's kind of funny about um, four guys from Tombstone, who's the boss? And it's not about being the boss. It's about contributing to an overall goal, respecting others. Um, um, even though Paul and Barnabas got in this argument in Acts chapter 15, they still step back, um, approach the situation. And that, in that point in time, it was to spread the gospel. And if you look in the back of your Bible and see all the maps of where they went around the Middle East uh, um, on missionary journeys, at the end of the day, they were still able to um, accomplish the overall goal, which was starting churches and spreading the word. So uh, Don and I have been through some rocky times, um, both um, personally with our friendship, with the company, that in the end, because you and I kind of stepped back and said, what's the overall goal? I think our relationship is probably better today than it's ever been. But it also weeded out some of those relationships where, people didn't look at it the same way we did. They weren't there for the overall goal. They were there for the selfishness. And, and being able to weed that out, separate yourself, refocus, and and be in line with your beliefs, your goals, 
Um, I think it says a lot that in the Bible, two guys had a really big argument, but they still got the job done. And uh, with what I'm doing in my life or in business, I have to remember that quite a bit because it's, it's not easy with the different organizations that I work with, but you just have to recognize that. Yeah, that's, that's a fantastic question, Bob. And from the day you submitted it, I knew I was going to use it at some point. And, uh, I just got tired of skipping over it and, and decided we was going to use it, uh, on this episode and appreciate you submitting it, you know, uh, to, expand a little bit on what I was saying um, I almost feel like my purpose has become my purpose in life I, I almost feel like I've been given an audience now and uh, God's you know given me that audience and he, he wants me to, to do something for it to or with it to build his kingdom you know he's opened doors for me and it seems like the more um the more attentive I am to him, the more doors open. He'll open one door, and, and if I handle it right, then he opens another. And, uh, you know, instead of doing things for selfish reasons, like Terry was saying, uh, if we think of others and uh, we give the, the credit and glory to God, it just seems like, uh, you know, another door, another opportunity opens for us. As Terry mentioned, he and I butted heads at one time. You know, at one time I really didn't even like him, <laughs> even though he was part of real world. <laughs> we butted heads, and then I had an opportunity to see his true character. And, uh, you know, I seen that the reason we were butting heads was not personal. He, he wasn't butting heads with me and me with him because he didn't like me. He was trying to improve basically real world, the company. And, uh, he had a different background than I did. And one that I fully didn't appreciate at the time, but I've come to, um, his background in business has been a blessing, uh, to real world and to me personally. And I would kind of, I, I didn't take it well, uh, when he first came around and started promoting some ideas that were kind of foreign to me. Um, but, you know, as when the situation arose and I got to see his true character, um, I seen that he had my back, um, and not necessarily had my back, but he's the kind of guy that's going to say what needs to be said, no matter who's there to hear it. He's not going to tell me one thing and then go tell somebody else the opposite. Um, Terry's a friend that that's gonna, he doesn't patronize me. He, you know, he, he tells me he speaks from the heart as a friend, and uh, that's something that I that I really cherish. So, well, I appreciate that. But we've we've both grown, and we were forced to grow um, over the last few years through different situations. And you know, again, it's it's a matter of you know when when you live your life, whether it's about hunting or about work or your marriage or your kids. The bottom line is we all screw up all the time. It's it's only by the grace of God that we have a an opportunity to, to even get blessed. But if if you go about your daily walk um, with anything you do, and and you look at how I can make a difference somewhere else, maybe it's you know coaching you sports, maybe it's working in the church, maybe it's uh, helping a neighbor, taking care of elderly. 
when you go with your approach, I guarantee you that you will be blessed more than if you start out uh, anything with how can this benefit me. Um, it's just it's it's a lesson that both Don and I have had to learn over the years. Um, <laughs> we've both grown up a lot. It's it's we're we're different ages, but. Um, over the last few years, um, our perspective on a lot of things have changed, and the respect we have for each other is we just, instead of arguing about stuff now, we just laugh about how much we're different. And that's okay. <laughs> that's it. Yep. Neither one of us. And that are, doesn't make either one of us any better than the other. It's, unless uh, the other one was a liberal, and then we would tell each other yeah, that. Yeah, then we'd have a real problem. <laughs> 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 yep. A good question, Bob. We appreciate it. Um, we don't we don't hide hide from our faith. That's for sure. We're not perfect. And <laughs> if you uh, if you follow me on social media this morning, I went groundhog hunting and sat in an old lawn chair and absolutely busted my butt. And if you could have heard what came out of my mouth when I hit the back of my head on the on the floor of that deck, you wouldn't have felt that I was a very godly person, but, um, I'm definitely not perfect, but, um, I sure try to live as best I can and to help others. So uh, when people try to pretend they're something they're not, I think is a problem, but, um, we sure, we sure try to, um, witness and, uh, and do the best we can. That's for sure. Yeah. We're all a work in progress. We're just trying to be better uh, today than we were yesterday. And, move forward in that direction yes sir well thanks for your question bob you two will be getting a uh, chasing giants t-shirt um we appreciate all the questions that have, have been submitted and uh you know, just just keep sending them in uh i'm weeding through them and like i said i'm trying to use ones that are relevant to the the time of the year uh when we're recording these podcasts so if you send one in and you don't hear it read on the on air for a while don't give up who knows when we're going to pull it and use it yep i want to let everybody know that this is episode 21 on episode 22 we're actually going to have pretty much our first guest um on the show um our buddy john mulligan at arrow wild did a um a corona covid I don't even know what it was. It was kind of a spin off of scaven or um, Hunger Games online, where you had to go around and look for clues and everything. And uh, Don and I gave a prize package away to some winners of that. And we're going to have a guest on the show next week that's going to take up one of our segments that we're going to talk about his specific property, uh, his goals, and kind of go through that. So we look forward to that. Um, that's going to be something a little bit new that we're going to work in uh, for the next. Pro um, the next episode and if if people like it we might do a little bit more of it in the future yeah we've got some other new things in the works that we're going to be uh revealing in the coming weeks and uh, we still got some specific uh topics that we want to talk about on future podcasts terry and i are going to talk spend one episode talking about uh those of you who want to get into the hunting industry um cover that uh, we're going to do an episode on managing your deer herd as far as culling bucks on your property. I've got a, a little bit of a unique um, thought on that, I guess. Uh, we've had several questions submitted on that that I've been saving just for that podcast. So, so that's another one that's going to be coming up uh, here this summer. Great. 
All right. If that's all you got, do you want to do you want to take us out? Absolutely. We'll thank our sponsors. Um, want to thank Biofarm.com for their support. 360 Hunting Blinds, Quiet Cat, Real World Wildlife Products, Vortex Optics, Lone Wolf Stands, and Matthews Archery. Uh, we appreciate all the sponsors, and we appreciate you listeners. Thank you. Have a good one.